Boy, last week sure was a downer. Yeah. I mean, you guys remember, uh, Jesus is out there. Uh, we're on the brink of disaster uh, at the beginning of this text. Really awful stuff. Uh, the whole world is under demonic enslavement. Uh, demons everywhere you look. Um, and not just the, uh, the, the obvious demons, right? The ones that, you know, take control of a person and, and make them hurt themselves and, and live amongst the graves. No, no. Th- these are some serious demons, the ones that are behind the scenes, the ones that are insidious, deep, and pervasive, the ones that corrupt and twist our institutions and our hearts to the point that we don't even know we're under their enslavement, and yet we are completely in their thrall. And Jesus is about to send out 70, or possibly 72, of his followers to go out in the midst of this and try to liberate them, liberate the people from demonic slavery. And of course, Jesus is terrified for his his followers. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. He says, when they reject you, when they're hostile to you, this is how you will respond. And we are set up for failure Today's text is Luke 10, 17 to 24. In your pew Bibles, it's on page 548. And let's see if Jesus' worries are justified. So please turn to Luke 10, 17 to 24. And when you have it on page 548, please stand and we'll read the text together. After all that failure, no, then the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, friends, I give you authority, power to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. But, but don't rejoice in this that the spirits, demonic powers, are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, at the same time, Jesus rejoices in the spirit and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent or prudent and revealed them to babes or babies. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight because you like doing that. It makes you happy. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and the one or the ones to whom the Son wills to reveal the Father. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Happy, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Please be seated. I mean, right? If we were in the text, if we were in that story, we were scared for the disciples. And isn't it strange, for the followers, isn't it strange that we we hear nothing? We we don't get any stories about what they do. It's, It's Jesus sends them out, terrified for them, they're about to fail. And then, bam, they come back filled with joy because they find that the victory and the spirit is theirs and that nothing, even the demons, can resist them. And just as an aside here, just a really quick one. 
Serpents and scorpions. If you're familiar with the Christian tradition, you're, you may be aware that there are some very enthusiastic groups that, uh, that go about and they, uh, they literally bring snakes and scorpions in their midst and uh, they will you know, walk on them or hold them in order to demonstrate that they have the power of the spirit, that, uh, that, that snakes and scorpions don't have the power to hurt them because they uh, take this verse uh, very literally. This is... Um, Verse 19. Well, I want to suggest to you that snakes and scorpions primarily symbolize demonic forces. And this is the first thing in your note sheets. Uh, snakes and scorpions uh, primarily symbolize demonic forces. And uh, there's a couple reasons we uh, can say that with some confidence. The first and most important being that if you just turn one page over in your Bible to Luke 11, you're going to find that snakes and scorpions are used by Jesus as illustrations, as symbols, really. Um, it's the part where... Uh, if a son asks for bread from a, a father, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer a scorpion? Right, so, so Luke, Luke's very comfortable, um, and Jesus is also very comfortable using snakes and scorpions as symbolic uh, of different things, illustrating other stuff. And if you look at the language all around um, this text, you find, again and again, demonic language, spiritual language, demons, subject, Satan, falls, uh, power of the enemy, uh, spirits are subject to you. What Jesus is talking about is spiritual forces. He is talking about the stuff behind the scenes. He is not talking, talking about the things that we find just in front of us, real obvious to us. He's talking about the real reality that's behind the veil. And I think this is important because, as we saw last week, there's really two types of demonic forces that are a danger to us and to the followers and to the disciples. And the first are the brazen ones, the ones that come out and throttle you and take control of, of you and, and, and subvert your will. Right? Those are like snakes. If you think about the way that snakes operate, you know, the snake, the serpent appears to Eve. He's like out in front, ready to get her. Um, and despite in Toy Story when Woody says, there's a snake in my boot, Snakes aren't typically hidden, right? Snakes, they, they come out to get to, to, to scare you. Now, the hidden ones, the ones behind the scenes, those naughty things, those are scorpions. If Woody were right, it would be a scorpion in my boot. Um, I think that actually happens to a lot of people in the Old West. Uh, vaqueros, cowboys, they wake up one morning and they forget to shake out their boot and then they have a real bad day. And then a, a subsequent very bad two weeks while they're, while they're trying not to, to perish. But yeah, so snakes and scorpions really are, are I think, symbolic of, of the type of, of uh, powers and spirits that are, uh, the, the, that are out to get us. If you must be literal about them, then I would suggest that when the followers were going out, right, they're out and they're in pairs and they're walking in sandals or on dusty roads trying to spread the gospel of God and presumably they might be attacked by the creepy crawly things of the ground. Um, which I would suggest to you is probably not the situation that we find ourselves in from day to day. So please, do not go snake handling. I'm saying it from the pulpit, and if you'd like to disagree, very well. Um, yes. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I told you last week that this is my uh, favorite text in the uh, Bible right now. And it has been for a while. 
And the reason is, is that if you, if you think about what's going on in this text, Jesus, when he says, I saw, this uh, word, I saw, it's not the normal word in Greek for uh, when you see something. Oh, I saw my friend last week. It's not that. It's the word that in Daniel 7 um, is used to describe a vision. Daniel says, I, I, I saw in a vision, and he uses this word, um, etherun. It's, uh, it's not always used that way, but in the scriptures, primarily when someone has a vision and they're seeing things that are, that are hidden and they're being revealed, those are the, this is the word that's used. And so it's as if Jesus is standing there and he's, he's meditating, he's in prayer, and the, the followers are out and they're spreading the gospel of God. And he was worried about them and he's presumably maybe praying, praying, Father, please give them victory. Send the Spirit, send my Spirit, send our Spirit and protect them. And suddenly he opens his eyes and he sees this cosmic vision where it's almost like a, uh, a preview vision, this is in your notes, a preview vision of the future. So there's all this stuff that's going on around Jesus, and he's praying, he's in, and he has this vision, a preview vision of the future. He sees right now, right here, what's going to happen, because a piece of it is happening as we speak. Uh, this text, uh, I saw Satan fall like a flash from lightning from heaven, has been, it, it, the question is, when did Jesus see this, right? Is it long in the past? Is it something that's happening now? Is it something that's happening in the future? Um, the church fathers typically thought that this was something that this was like Jesus was remembering something as the pre-existent son as uh, there's like this cosmic war in heaven and he sees Satan fall from, from the sky I want to suggest that that is not the case that instead if we look at the text that this is um, echoing primarily Isaiah 14 and Revelations 12 you don't need to turn there if you don't want to but you can um, in both of those texts we have a, a, a prophetic vision in the first one by Isaiah and the second one by John at Patmos looking forward to the future to the end and in both of them uh, in the first one Lucifer son of the morning Hillel in, in Hebrew um, is, is, uh, is falling down to earth uh, as he was sort of like the patron saint of Babylon, and therefore demonic, Hillel. And then uh, later on, we see who the, one, the, the power behind Hillel is Satan, right? And so the ultimate enemy was behind the oppression of, of Israel. And, and the, the prophet Isaiah sees him fall to the earth, right? Uh, in a very similar way, like lightning. Then in Revelation 12, we hear of the cosmic war where, angel, where Michael and the archangels are, are in, in, uh, in utter battle, a final, complete battle with the enemy, and we see Satan fall to the earth, very similar. And in both of those cases, we know this is something that hasn't happened yet, it's something that's happening at the end. And uh, if you look in the, the text, you'll notice um, in Isaiah fourteen fifteen it says, yet you, Lucifer, shall be brought down to the pit. Hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for that. Um, and in Revelation 12, uh, the cosmic war, uh, verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation, strength, the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ have come. That has to have happened first before Satan can come to the earth. And so I think we're on really solid ground when we say that uh, Jesus is, is praying, he's meditating, and he senses almost a, a disturbance in the force. He's in a world that is utterly controlled, enslaved. And he's worried that his followers are about to be shaken up, beaten down. And as he's praying, he senses what's actually taking place. That, that handcuffs are being loosed, shackles uh, and chains shattered, and, and demonic forces are losing their grip on the world for the first time. And then he receives a vision of the end, when this will be complete, finalized, 
When Satan, the accuser, who sits at the foot of God, deceiving and accusing, is cast down once and for all. And what this means is that when Jesus, and then when we, experience these these ebbs and flows, these fits and starts of the liberation of the kingdom of God, when we experience these things, we are having a taste, a preview vision of the end We are seeing in our own experience when we see liberation from the subtle and insidious power of the enemy, we are seeing what we will experience in full on the last day. And this is why when I read this text, it shakes my heart a little bit. Because maybe like, maybe you're like me. Maybe you desire that now. Maybe at some point in your past, you have been a part of a community of faith, or you've seen amazing things, and, and, and you were so excited, so, so passionate, so empowered, because it seemed like the gates of hell could not withstand the prayers of the saints, when it seemed like the enemy just could not prevail, because you were a part of a movement that was liberating and powerful and incredible, where everything that you, every oppression that you saw was lifted off, and people came together in repentance and in prayer, praising God and forming new communities of faith. Maybe you've been a part of a, of a situation like that, and maybe you're like me, and you look back and you say, oh, to have that again, that energy, that, that excitement, to have that well up. When that happens, you are participating in a preview of the last day. And I think it's true. I think from time to time, the Spirit does come and unleash power in our midst. It's happened here. I've been a part of uh, this, this place, and we all have seen incredible things, surprising things. You know, it's always you know, from left field. The whole world gets turned upside down, and you're shocked, even though we probably shouldn't be. We see signs and wonders, just as they did in the first century, release, vindication, and these times are marked. Notice that uh, the, the followers come back in joy. You know, every time, every time we see the Spirit move and move powerfully, it is accompanied by rampant, unadulterated, pure joy. There's an excitement that accompanies that that is difficult to articulate. You have to feel it. When those winds of change come and healing takes place, Well, maybe you're like me. Maybe you'd like that to happen today. No? You're not on board for that. Okay. Well, I would, I mean, I I think that would be, I think it would be amazing. I think it would be amazing if if the scales fell from our eyes and we saw the places in our lives and in this community and outside of this community where release and liberation need to take place, where repentance uh, needs to happen, where our lives need to change and do change. They change radically. And, 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 Everything that enslaves us, we're set free. I would love to... Well, okay, I'll be honest. I'm a little bit scared because I'm afraid that that might require me to change. Um, I don't mind seeing the rest of you change. But, but, but me, ugh, That is... But, it, but at the same time, so I feel, that, I feel that in one way. But on the other hand, I also feel that I know that this is what God has for us. I know this is the end. And I want to see it now. I want to see it in my life. I want to see it in our lives. 
And on top of everything else, remember, the followers, they are doing this before the cross. We, friends, have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We have the indwelling of the Spirit. Surely, surely it's time. Surely it's time for one of these revolutions. Can we have one now? Can there be liberation today? I say yes, but on two conditions. One, it's God's priority. God's got to do it. I, you know, I, I really wish that I could manipulate God and you know, sort of tell him what to do and get him on board with my plan. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. What, how, how God works is God does things on God's time, in God's will, and it's usually surprising, it's usually gracious. Uh, we, can't, we can't force God's hand, we can't um, you know, twist God's arm and say, do it! That's not how it works. And yet, and yet, there is something we can do today to be prepared and to be ready for the unleashing, the unleashing of the Spirit of God. And that is, we need to be the right kinds of people. And in this text, what we see is that God is looking for a few good babies. Yes, God is not looking for a few good men. Although I think God uses a few good men, and we have a number in our congregation and have over the years. Um, But God is looking for a few good babies. Notice what it says in verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you've hidden these things, hidden the things of liberation, the things of freedom from demonic power, the things of freedom from sin, from repentance, and, for new, and from new life. You've hidden them from the wise and the prudent, and you've revealed them to babies. Which, if you think about it, is probably pretty insulting. I've had a baby, I've had two now, and they are, um, all I can say is, Scott, I'm so sorry, man. Uh, it's a tough row, buddy. Yeah, they cry so much. They don't sleep enough. Kim, bless you. Where's Kim? Is she here? Kim, bless. I mean, bless Kim. Oh, there she is. I mean, my goodness. Wow. What strength. Uh, yeah, I remember it was, what, one week in after Olivia was born, you know, Aaron was just completely obliterated. So I was like, I've been sleeping 10 hours a night while you've been down on the couch downstairs. Why don't I go ahead and take one for you? Because I'm a generous guy. And so I, uh, I did, I, I, and I literally had to hold Olivia from 2 a.m. to 6.30 a.m. And it was one of the worst experiences of my life. It was awful. Oh, man. And here Jesus is like, you babies. Uh, babies, why? I mean, what, is Jesus saying that they're um, helpless? That they're useless? Is that, I mean, if you're a follower and you come back and, you know, presumably maybe you're like, you know, the rest of us and you think that you're a wise, intelligent sort of person and Jesus is like, no, no, you're like a little, little mewling infant. That's you. And probably some of them are smart, wise, intelligent people and yet Jesus says, maybe you are, but that's not what I like about you. That's not what God took advantage of. He took, to, he took advantage of your babyishness. He ignored your wisdom and your intelligence. And it says, uh, even so, Father, when he's praying, he says, it seemed good in your sight. It makes you happy. That's an idiom for makes you happy in the language. So for some reason, God's looking around, and he sees these, um, 
you know, great people, they're wise, they're intelligent, prudent, they make good decisions, smart folks. And yet, for some reason, it makes him happy to just put the, put the wool over their eyes and send them off to the side, and then take these other folks, these babies, and reveal the liberation of God to them. Now, last week, we uh, skipped over a portion um, in 1 to 16. It says, uh, Jesus has this saying, you know, the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. Well, I think if we take Jesus' words here about the babies thing seriously, we can understand why nobody is out there working for Jesus. Working for Jesus is awful. It's not as though there's 100% spiritual employment in Israel. There's not. Uh, Israel's probably a lot like our situation, maybe a lot worse, where unemployment um, in the spiritual world is very high. And yet, Jesus is out there going, can I get a few decent workers? Friends, let's pray, let's pray for some laborers. The reason no one's coming is because no one wants to be a baby. Because working for Jesus is terrible. We didn't talk about it last week, and, and I'd like to bring it up now. Um, when Jesus sends the 70 or 72 out, he gives them what? No money, no weapons. Which, maybe you're thinking no weapons is a good thing. Well, I disagree with you. I think if you're you know, out on the roads in ancient Israel, you'd better have a sword with you. Because brigands are probably going to come and try and take stuff from you. The only defense they have against that is that they don't bring anything. They have no clothes. They have no nice place to stay. The, the, The disciples are sent out naked. Who wants to work like that? In fact, the only thing that they've got, and this is the third thing in your note sheets, it says, Jesus' name is the only thing he gives his followers to depend on. Jesus' name is the only thing he gives his followers to depend on. No preparation, nothing. Just go out in my name. So imagine that you're Ike. And it's, uh, we're coming up on D-Day. And you're looking at the situation, you're thinking, oh boy, this one's going to be tough. And you're, you're, try, you're trying to staff your, uh, your military, your, your, your army, to charge the beaches of Normandy and to uh, you know, beat back the forces of Hitler. Well, when, you're, when you've got those landing crafts headed on the waves, <laughs> headed towards the beach, and at the top of the beach there are a bunch of machine guns, and there are mortars, uh, and they are going to be obliterating Everyone who comes up on that beach. If you're Ike and you're thinking about that, the last person you want in that landing craft is an academic. You do not want somebody who's really smart, a wise, intelligent, brilliant, you know, self-assured academic. That's not the kind of person that you want to fulfill this mission. Because if you're an academic and you're in that landing craft, you're probably like, is this... Is this really the best idea? Hey, boss, um, look, it just seems to me like, you know, water's kind of rough, and I don't know if you noticed, but there's a whole bunch of guns up there waiting for us. Who's in charge here? You know, I've got an idea. Maybe, maybe we should rethink this whole, whole thing. Also, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I mean, okay, granted, Hitler seems like a pretty bad guy. I, I give you that. But I mean, are we really any better? This is classic academic... Uh, if you hang out in the, in the academy at all, you'll, you'll hear this all the time. Like, are we really any better? Surely, um, this country has its sins. Maybe, maybe we're on, who are we to judge? 
And, and, if, and if we're not even certain about our own, you know, righteousness, moral superiority, whatever, then how is it that we can, we can commit to a mission like this? This is, guys, turn around the boat. This is, a, this is an awful decision. I don't know who came up with it, but I need to speak with them because I think I figured a few things out here and we are doing something that's really, 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 really dumb. Yeah, academics. They second-guess everything. They're very good at being critical, very good at being analytical, very good at coming up with ideas, but they are not good at taking orders. They're not good at being team players. If you, and they, <laughs> if you don't believe me, uh, Plato, right? He writes The Republic, and in The Republic, this is his most famous philosophical work, uh, he describes the perfect um, uh, community, right? And he says, if you want your community to run really, really well, you got to put the uh, academics in charge. The philosopher kings, he calls them. You know, people like me. We're the ones that need to be at the top. And we'll organize everything and figure it all out so it's just perfectly designed, and then the rest of you will be happy. Academics are the worst. They are, they are simply unequipped uh, to take orders, to be soldiers, to be the ones who actually get things done. I want to suggest to you that not only did the Father hide these things, the power of liberation from the academics, the wise and the prudent and the intelligent. He's tried them before. I want to suggest that the God of the universe, the God of Abraham and Isaac, use people like Moses, use people like David, and of course Solomon, people who had it all together, people who understood the mysteries of the universe. And it was a disaster. And so God is looking for a few good babies. People who don't have what academics have. He's looking for soldiers who trust the general. Ike, you probably know what you're doing. Who put their heads down. Who take the hill. Who don't ask questions. Another reason God likes babies is because God likes to turn stuff upside down. He doesn't like to leave things the way we think they ought to be. God doesn't establish Plato's Republic. It, it, yeah, in, in, in our world, of course, it's the cognitive elites who run the show. You know, you work really hard in high school, you go to Harvard, and then you're tasked with running the, uh, the country after you graduate. But in the Great War against the great enemy, it's fishermen, it's carpenters, it's prostitutes that win, that win the battles. It's babies. I like how uh, when they get back, uh, this, is, this is verse 20, right? Uh, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You've heard this line before. This is uh, in episode four. It's hard to keep track. I keep making them. But in episode four where uh, Luke is in the gunner thing, and he like, I got one, I got one, I shot down a TIE fighter. And Han looks back and says, great shot, kid. Don't get cocky. 
Nobody? I love that. I love that part. It's like the best. Great shot, kid. Don't get cocky. It's like they come back and they're like, Lord, the, the demons submit. We're having the first victory in the great war. Isn't this wonderful? And Jesus is like, yeah, it's good. And hey, keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. I love it. But, but great shot, kid. Don't get cocky. And I think there's a reason for this. It, it has something to do with the wise and the intelligent. It's because, okay, so here we've had this long war, this cosmic war. Demons are controlling the, worth, the world. Demonic powers have enslaved Israel and the world around it. And we finally got a win here. And what's going to happen? Well, you know the, the, the saying, every successful uh, system attracts parasites. And I guarantee you, if you have success in Jesus' name, a bunch of academics and scholars, the wise and intelligent, are going to try and get in on the action. They're going to try using Jesus' name to get liberation and power for themselves. You'll see this in Acts 8, Simon uh, Magus. Um, we can think of Luke and Acts as, as two parts of the same story. And after there is success in Jesus' name, people, the wolves, if you will, come in and try and co-opt the, uh, the movement. And Jesus is saying, look, if you maintain, if you maintain what you're doing, keep your eyes on heaven, keep your eyes on the kingdom of God, and you don't get all excited about the power and the glory, here's going to be, you're going to be able to tell when people are in your midst who are like that. Don't, don't, don't go around congratulating each other. Oh man, you healed that guy. You, oh, you freed that woman and that. And that. Don't, don't go in there. Don't be in that place. Instead, be in the place that says, we have a home that we're headed to and it is in heaven. And when you are acting like that, you will be much better suited to find the folks who come in and want to take control. Now, we saw that God enjoys using babies. And I think the important question for us, if we're, if, we're, if we're legitimately asking, we're saying, hey, what kind of people do we have to be so that we're ready, so that when the Spirit comes, we are ready to participate and see the liberation of God take the world? What kind of people do we have to be? What does it mean to be a baby? Well, I want to suggest four things in your note sheets, the four reasons that God loves, enjoys, is happy to work with little babies and not the academics. And the first thing is that babies trust absolutely. Babies, I mean, bless them. This is one of the things that you know endears them to your heart. Is that they don't, they don't doubt. They don't even know how to doubt. They just know that mommy is there, and that's where safety is. They just trust. And they cling. That's the second thing. They cling to, to God. The babies, they cling. Um, even now, uh, Olivia, you know, she... I, I don't, obviously don't want to have anything to do with her. So I, I try to, I try to, to get rid of her. Cause, but she's like, it's like she's glue. You know, you, uh, you know tear, tear her off and get her back to mommy. Or, or she'll be walking around and she'll see mommy or me and she'll be like... <laughs> like a little vice. They cling. They don't, they, don't, they don't think, oh, you know what? I got a better deal over there. Hold on. You stay where you are, and let me go check out this. And if this is better, then I'm not going to come back. That's what they do when they turn two and then three, which I found. They're like, eh, 
I'll see what I can. I'm going I'm to bargain here. They trust absolutely. They cling to God. And they follow. Wherever you go, the baby chases you. Because the baby knows you are where safety is. And the last, and I think most important thing, is that babies have no choice in the matter. Babies haven't developed that ability that we have to reflect and criticize, to analyze, to you know, look at the plan and say, uh, 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 let's tweak it here, 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 and here. This isn't exactly the way I'd go about things. Let's try this and this. That's not in a baby's mind. That is not a, a capability, an ability a baby has. A baby just does these things because that's what it is to be a baby. They trust, they cling, they follow. There's nothing else to do and no choice in the matter but to do it. And that makes babies the exact opposite of the wise and the intelligent, the academics and the scholars. And the reason that God needs that is because God's wisdom is not our wisdom. God's ways are not our ways. His paths are not our paths. And if we're really honest with ourselves and we step back from the situation and we look at who God is and what God has done, we have to admit that everything on God's you know, agenda is ludicrous. You don't win the war by becoming your creation and having other members of your creation murder you. That's mad. That is not the way to win. That is imprudent. That is foolish. Only a baby would go along with that. You know, the Pharisees and the wealthy, we're going to see in just in the very next uh, passage, we're going to find a guy who's like, uh, yeah, I think I've got a better plan here. Because he's got stuff. He's, he's wealthy. He's taken care of. And so when he sees the mysterious, insane, upside-down, topsy-turvy plan of God, he says, oh, no. Oh no, that is a terrible, terrible decision. And I think that's why Jesus says in truth in verse 22, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and the one or ones to whom the Son wills to reveal him. We think we know God. Jesus says, no, you don't. I know God. But, but, if you're a little baby, maybe I will reveal God to you. And if you remember, this is the first teaching Jesus has done, close to the first teaching he's done, since he set his face to Jerusalem, since he set his face to go to the cross. He says, I'm looking for a few good babies, people who will see me crucified as a blasphemer and as a rebel. And those babies will look at that and they will see the face of the God of the universe. This, I submit to you, is not the plan approved of by my friends in academia. 
Last thought. Uh, Jesus inaugurates the long war against demonic powers and forces in these uh, 70 or 72 followers. It begins with a resounding success. The battle is won, and it continues to be waged. In in fact, the most important battle is about to be waged in Jerusalem at the cross when uh, Jesus takes into himself the sin and corruption of the world and uh, takes it away. Nevertheless, we, 2,000 years later, might be wondering, along with the academics, why so long, Lord? Why tarry, Lord? Why does the war continue? Please, just end it. What is wrong with you? Come back. Finish it. We're tired. Now, we have in theology a number of different answers to this question. We, we, we might answer um, that we need to propagate the gospel. Yes, indeed. Uh, the gospel needs to go out. All need to hear. And God, in his grace and his mercy, has withheld uh, the, the son's return until that is completed. And so we can say that, yes. We can also say that God's merciful and he looks down in his creation. He longs for people to come and repent. And he longs for their trust, their faith. And he waits for it. Yes. We can say it's grace. It's gracious that God uh, has patience and lavishes his gifts on us as he waits for the final consummation of all things. But here's the, here's the thing, friends. At the very end of the day, the long war against the powers of darkness is mysterious. That's in your note sheets. It's mysterious. And it is not our lot to understand. If God wanted us to understand, he would have used the the academics and the wise and the intelligent. Instead, he's looking for a few good babies. In fact, if you're asking those questions, God, why do you tarry? Well, you might just want to ask, why did God come to us as a poor carpenter from the north in Galilee? That seemed like a bad plan. Why did God, in the Old Testament, use the uh, disabled uh, Ehud, you know, he couldn't use his right arm, and so he had to be left-handed to uh, take out the king of Bashan, Philistia, I can't remember. Why, I mean, why, why use that guy? Why not use somebody who was awesome? And, for, and while we're on it, why is it that God reveals himself to us as a trinity, as Father, Son, and Spirit? That seems crazy. The trinity is so complicated that even the learned angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas himself, at the end of the day said, I cannot comprehend you, God, and I will simply be silent before your majesty. The long war against the powers of darkness is like God himself. It is mysterious. And it is not for us to understand it. Instead, it's for us to trust, to obey, and to be a few good babies. Let's pray. Father, we uh, confess that we are people who by nature are academic and scholarly and wise and intelligent. That it's deeply embedded in our hearts and in our minds to be that. To figure it out, to do our own thing, to improve on your plans. God, I ask instead that we will be babies the ones to whom you reveal victory over the powers, repentance, liberation from sin and bondage, and eventually eternal life. God, I pray that you stir your spirit up, that you take Coast Bible Church, this motley crew of babies, and you shake the gates of hell 
and so that we too will confess that we have seen Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In your name we pray, amen.